Well, good morning. My name is Sam Kastensmith. I'm the pastor of education here at Rio Vista, and I'm the headmaster of Bethany Christian School across the street. We've launched into this uh, series where the gospel changes everything, and last week we talked about the Beatitudes. Jesus launches his Sermon on the Mount. And if you were here last week, you remember that the main idea is Jesus is coming before his people at the very beginning of his ministry, his first sermon, the greatest sermon in the history of the world. And he's saying, if you want to advance the kingdom of God, it's going to be done through the gate of humility. Right? And he comes to people who are like us, right? We, we want to... We want to show the world that we're successful and so we come with the burdens of showing the world that our marriage is great and that we're wonderful parents and I meet every expectation as a dad and an amazing husband, all of which are true, my wife will tell you. <laughs> anyway, we come with all of those expectations and we want to show that we're prosperous and we want to show all of this and Jesus is coming to us at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and saying, stop. Stop. You're free from that slavery, from that compulsion to always have the mask on, trying to convince everybody that you've got it all together and all the stress and anxiety that comes along with that. Here, here, here. Listen to me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in each and every one of those beatitudes, he's calling us to embrace with liberty who we are to stop pretending and to humble ourselves knowing that when we do, it's in that precise moment that we receive all the blessings of God. And so as we continue on in the Sermon on the Mount, we find Jesus not changing the subject, but telling us a little bit like, what, 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 what does that look like when you follow after a life in the Beatitudes? When you become my hands and feet to the world and go out and say, hey, you who are outcasts, you that are poor, you that are far off, you that are, that are downtrodden, the kingdom is open to you. All you who mourn, all of you who are in distress, the Lord's comfort is offered to you. When we become his hands and feet, he says, okay, this is what that's going to look like. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And we talk about salt today, and salt's kind of like, all right, yeah, thank you, pass the salt. Why would, why would Jesus call us salt? Oh, in the ancient world, in the first century, when Jesus is speaking those words to his audience, that would have had 
very, very rich connotations. That metaphor was filled with meaning. For example, if I came to you or if your boss came to you on payday and said, good work, and handed you a five-pound bag of salt, you would probably say, uh, no. (laughs) But in the ancient world, much of the world was paid in salt. You realize that's where we get the word salary. It's the root of that. Salinity, salt, salary. We still to this day ask if somebody's doing a good enough job and we'll say, are they worth their salt? Salt was this precious commodity and Jesus is coming and saying, the world should want you. You should be of a character. You should be so valuable to your community that the world looks at the church, at Christians, and says, I want them. They are a precious commodity. But salt beyond that has so many other benefits. Salt enhances the flavor of all kinds of foods. You could cook a steak, and it could be a wonderful steak. And you add salt and it enhances the flavor. It brings out flavor. You put salt on broccoli. You put salt on whatever. And it enhances the flavor of something. It brings out the goodness of what, you, what it comes in contact with. So when Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, you bring out the best in what you come in contact with. You bring out their flavor. Do we do that? You make people thirsty. When they come in contact with you, I can tell you that when I came to faith, the thing that got me to come to church was seeing a guy in the office right next to me who was going through all the same season of life that I was, and yet he had joy. He was secure. He wasn't bouncing around with anxieties and fears and depression. He was standing on a rock and I thought, what does this guy have that I don't have? I was thirsty for what he had. You are the salt of the earth. You make people want to find the wellspring of water that satisfies. And only Christ does. Salt is an antiseptic. When you're a little kid, or even in my case, a grown adult with a wife who's amazing, and I go to her and I say, oh, my throat is is shredded. I've got the worst sore throat, strep throat, whatever. She's going to say, gargle with salt water. Why? Because salt's an antiseptic. It's going to go in there and it's going to go into the open wounds of my throat and all of the inflamed areas and it's going to settle it down. It's going to take away the inflammation. It's going to remove the bacteria. It's going to do all. And in the ancient world, they would use that on open wounds because it prevented infection. You are the salt of the earth. You are a healing agent to those that are wounded. Salt's a preservative. How many of you here have ever had country ham? If you've ever had country ham, it's like you take a bite of it and you think, I would like a little bit of uh, ham with my salt. It is outrageous. And you know the reason why they call it country ham? Because back before refrigerators were invented and electricity was in the South, When you would gather your meat, when you would slaughter the animal and you would put together all of your meat, you couldn't put it in the freezer. So guess what you did? You packed it in salt. Why? Because salt is a preservative. 
It keeps things from rotting. Its very presence in contact with something will keep that thing from going astray and falling into rot and decay. You are the salt of the earth. In the Bible, when, when God comes to Moses and He says, okay, here's going to be this offering system. He tells Moses, with all of your offerings, you shall offer salt. Why? I mean, they would take this offering, this animal sacrifice or grain offering, and they would put it in the fire and the smoke would go up, and that was your offering to God. But here's the deal. Wherever the salt went on, and that was a symbol, by the way, of it being pure, of it being clean, of it being enduring, but, but when you would add salt that particular part of the offering would be a slow burn. I used to do this for my students when I taught, and I thought, I should do it up here, but I've already survived the gauntlet with the candles for Christmas without burning the church down, and I didn't want to try this one. But go home, go into your backyard, don't let your kids see, see you do this, and if you have kids with you, plug their ears. But if you go home and you take a paper towel... And you lay it on something, and you sprinkle salt around it. You know, not drenching it, but just sprinkle salt around it. And then you light the edge of that paper towel on fire. That fire will race until it comes into contact with the area that's been sprinkled with salt, and then it goes. And when you sprinkled something with salt, it endured. It's an anti-inflammatory. It's actually anti fire it would it would take that sacrifice and it would endure you are the salt of the light your daily sacrifices you endure you're not a flash and the pan newborn babies would be salted why you would put this don't do that today by the way but you would put salt on the baby then you would quickly wash it off and the salt would make the skin smooth it would take away all of the 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 things that could cause infection that would make the baby clean. Still to this day, if you look at most women's products that are really good for the skin, they come from the Dead Sea. Well, what's the Dead Sea known for? It's got a salinity nine times that of the average sea around the world. And it's really good for your skin. It clears it up. My wife went and bought a gift certificate to a place called the Salt Suite that's right here on 17th Street. It's a place where people go in and you sit in a room in a lounge chair and the floor and walls and everything else are just covered with salt and you just sit there. Why? Because all kinds of studies have shown that salt is good for your lungs. It clears up COPD. It helps with asthma. It does all these things. Why? Because it puts down infections. I was asking my wife, do they realize that there's a beach like right there? <laughs> but these places actually really help. He goes on in Colossians, and Paul will tell us this, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Well, okay, well, when we hear that in modern context, it's like, what does that mean? In ancient context, he's telling you, let your salt be healing. Let your speech be healing. Let your speech bring out the very best in people, the best flavors. And it even refers to the very covenant, the basis for God's mercy and grace to us as a covenant of salt. It's healing. It's enduring. It prevents rot. It keeps you safe. 
And if the salt has lost its flavor, in the end of that verse, in verse 13, Jesus says, and if the salt is no longer good for anything, except it will be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And that he's not talking about, oh yeah, this is old. Shh. That's, a, that's like a military tactic. In the ancient world, when you would conquer a city, if I destroyed the city and burned it down and I never wanted my enemies to inhabit that city ever again, you would go out to the fields and you would cast salt upon the fields. And like Abimelech did, he would have his army go behind it and march that salt down into the fields. And guess what would happen? It would never, or at least for a long time, it would not be fertile anymore. It couldn't grow crops. It couldn't bear fruit. It would literally kill the ground for generations. And Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth. You are called to bring out the best in people. You're called to heal. You're called to preserve, prevent rot and decay. You're to be life-giving. But if you, taking my name, are worthless in all of those categories of what salt is supposed to be, you're like the salt that is cast down and makes everything infertile. You prevent life from emerging. Think through what he means there. If you walk through this world and you're claiming identity and under the name of God and as the people of God, and you show none of those qualities, but you blend in and you become like the world, and you do all the same things as the world, and you love all the same things as the world, and you're hostile like the world, and you're lacking in grace and mercy just like the world, then when people see you and identify you as a Christian, they'll say, I don't need that. You prevent life from emerging in them if you are useless salt. Jesus, you know, when we talked last week, we said that the greatest strategy of the enemy in wrecking the advancement of the kingdom of God was not promoting sin and wild living, but it's to take things in the name of God and make counterfeit Christians. The easiest way for me to destroy a currency is not to round up every single bill around the world, but it's to produce a massive amount of counterfeits of them. Because it will make the genuines seem worthless. And he's saying, if you're useless salt, if you've lost your flavor, if you're not doing what you're intended to do, you're going to make everyone look at you as a counterfeit and say, I don't want that. I don't need that. He's no different than I am. And so Jesus continues, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And when Jesus calls us the light of the world, like that is a big statement. You remember at the beginning, what is Jesus's, apart from creating the heavens and the earth, what is the first thing he does? What's the first action he takes on day one to create light? Right? And how does that story go? Let's, let's look back at Genesis 1 and remember what God does here. 
It says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the world. But the Spirit came and moved upon the surface, and God says, let there be light. Boom! And light emerges and conquers the darkness, and it says He separates the light from the darkness. And He saw that it was good the first day. We live in a broken world, do we not? Jesus comes and He's on a mission and He's going to repeatedly say things like, I come to make all things new. You are a new creation. I'm on a mission to bring about a new heavens and a new earth. And guess what His first act is? In the new creation, guess when He says, let there be light. It's from the cross. When He has taken your sin, your darkness, the eclipse, the heaviness on Himself at the cross, and in exchange He takes His perfect, beautiful righteousness and He plants it and clothes you in it. And He says, let there be light. You are the beginning of God's new creation. And what is light? What does it look like? Well, the Lord, the Bible says that God is light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Light has a form, a substance. It moves on waves. Darkness doesn't. Darkness is empty. Darkness is merely the absence of light. There's nothing to it. It's empty. It's cold. It's lifeless. It's void. You remember that day one of creation? We were empty. We were darkness. We were void of meaning and purpose until the Spirit moved and the Word was spoken and light emerges in our hearts. That story is our story. Light is active. It's radiant. It illuminates. It guides us. It, it shows us our path. It offers wisdom. Light is the cause. Think of it. You, church, light of the world. Light is the cause and the source of all beauty. If I were to ask you what color my shirt is, what would you say? Navy blue? Dark blue? No. My shirt has no color. Do you know what makes color? That light shoots out these wavelengths traveling at 186,000 miles an hour. This substance absorbs all of those wavelengths except the one that reflects at a wavelength that makes your eyes process dark blue. Why, why do I tell you that? Because light is the source of all beauty. When you walk into a garden and you see flowers that are all these amazing colors, or you look, at, you look in an aquarium at fish and they're so beautiful, arrayed in all these colors, they do not have any beauty on their own. It is merely the light that reflects from them that gives them the appearance of beauty. God is the source. God, the light of the world, is the source of all beauty. And then He calls on us and says, you are the light of the world. You are to make things more beautiful. You are to bring about the beauty just as you brought out the flavor. 
It's the source of warmth and an otherwise cold existence. You find those that are outside the gates, that are out in the darkness, and light is comfort. It's warmth. It brings them in. It sustains light, sustains all life that you find on this planet. If the sun were to cease to exist tomorrow, all life on earth would die. We learned this when we were kids, learning about photosynthesis, right? Light is the source of life. You are the light of the world. God, so graciously by the power of His Spirit, has given you, me, this mission whereby we bring the power of His resurrection and new life into the world. You are the light of the world. And finally, light always triumphs over darkness. Always. Let that encourage you. You know, if you look at our sun, it's an amazing amazing thing. Do you know that that produces in one second the equivalent of 67 trillion atomic bombs going off at once in a second? In one second, it produces so much power that it could fuel the world's needs for 500,000 years, and we are that little speck right next to it. You know, I, we, when my kids were little, we used to sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Which is kind of an annoying song, right? But twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. When you ever thought the irony that you're singing twinkle, twinkle, little star to that? This ferocious ball of gas and burning fury. Twinkle, twinkle. Like, it's like going up to a Tyrannosaurus Rex and being like, oh, what a cute little lizard. But that thing is 93 million miles away from us. There is a vast expanse of utter darkness between that thing and us that its light just races through and overwhelms and conquers. And even when we go outside this afternoon and we look up at the light that is originating 93 million miles away and has conquered that vast ocean of darkness, when it hits our eyes, we can't look at it. Light always conquers the darkness. Someday, we we are dim lights, right? We don't compare to what Jesus will do. We're like the moon compared to the sun. We're a reflection of this wonderful and radiant light. And we provide light to a dark world, right? But we hope for the day... You know, like we sang this morning, the morning tarries long, but there's going to come a moment when the Son of Righteousness will return. And there will be no room for any darkness. It will be wiped out. And all the moons and stars and all the labor will, be, will disappear into nothing. When you go out and you look at the daytime sky, there's just as many stars behind it. But they are pale in comparison to the glory of the sun who radically transforms everything just like He will in the new world and the new creation when His glory will sustain all things. That's what we look forward to. And Jesus now is going to start talking about the law and it feels like in a sermon He's going, okay, point number two, but I want you to hang with me because He's not shifting subjects here. 
one of the things, one of the key ideas of when he's talking about salt and light, here it is, salt and light do not exist for themselves. Do you catch that? Salt and light exist to bring out the very best in that in which they encounter. It brings out the flavor. It brings healing. It brings beauty. It brings warmth. It brings all of these things not for itself, but for what it comes in contact with. And Jesus is saying, you are the salt and the light. You were made to make this world a better place, a new creation. And Jesus goes and He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, small, small letter, looks like an apostrophe in Hebrew, not one dot will pass away from the law until it is accomplished. And here's the deal. Jesus is holding up a very high standard. So when you're coming into the New Testament and you're thinking, oh, finally, we're not under the burdens of the law. Jesus is bursting that bubble. And He's saying, no, no, no. There's not one dot, not one iota of the law that's going to be taken away. But I'm going to go fulfill it. I am going to bear the beam on my shoulders. I'm going to walk up the streets of Calvary. I'm going to face the mob and the scorn. I'm going to go to the cross. And for all the ways that we have failed to keep the law, He is going to suffer to pay the penalty for our rebellion. The law does not go away. You know, God is so forgiving and He's so merciful and He's so wonderful and so many of us in our culture want to treat that forgiveness like God up in heaven is hearing us going, yeah, God, I, I, I did X, Y, and Z and God's going to go, well, I really love you, so we'll just ignore that standard. We'll just, oh, you committed adultery? You lied? You stole? All right, well, we'll just, we'll just ignore those. Just so I can let, I, I forgive you. No. God's forgiveness is not cheap. His Son went to a cross to pay for our failures. God does not look at sin and go, eh. God looks at sin and has to put His Son to death to defeat it. Sin is Christ-side, as Spurgeon said. It's heavy. God's forgiveness is not cheap. It is the most costly thing that has ever been given to you. And so when we treat God as though, ah, He'll forgive me. Think of the cost of that forgiveness. Appreciate it. Love Him for it. Jesus has fulfilled the law for you so that you are not under its slavery any longer. He goes on and He says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And for slackers in here like me, you go, okay, so if I relax them, I'm still called the least in the kingdom of heaven. All right, well, all right, we're good. Least in the kingdom of heaven, all right. 
But he's not doing away with them. He's saying, man, if you will will let go of your kingdom and your desires and chase after mine, you will be great in the kingdom of heaven. You're trading a, a mist and a vapor of your life for an eternity over here. This is more precious. Don't live for your small, petty kingdom that's... Become great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes and he makes a comment that's utterly shocking to everybody who would have heard it. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And man, if that makes you uncomfortable, in first century Israel, everybody who would have heard that would have like thrown up their papers and been like, well, then I'm out. Because the Pharisees were known for their meticulous attention to the law. They kept it all. And they wanted everybody for sure to know that they kept it all. They wanted to be puffed up and for everybody to look at them and go, wow, they're so holy. Even the name Pharisee means separated or holy ones. And they would walk around and they would make sure that everybody observed that they were keeping the exact letter of the law, at least on the outside. They even for the Sabbath, just to give you an example, on the Sabbath, the Sabbath commandment, the fourth commandment is pretty clear. It's, you know, you shall work six days and on the seventh day you shall rest because it's holy to the Lord. You rest from your labors. And so to protect that, they then built extra fences around the law to make sure that they didn't even get close to breaking the Sabbath. And so they came up with 39 extra rules of things that you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. And just because I think it's hilariously sad, I want to share some with you. The Pharisees said you could not plant and plow. I get that. That's, that's intense. But you also were not allowed to do laundry. Some amens, right? Cooking, writing, erasing, tearing paper, tying knots, untying knots, sewing, separating threads, measured cutting, spitting on the ground because that might cause crops to grow, smoothing out materials like sheets on a bed, lighting a fire. If it's cold, just deal with it because it's work to light a fire. And if your house catches on fire, it was also against the rules to put out that fire. You know the story of Jesus when he heals the man who's been lame and he says, take up your mat and walk. And the man does. He's been lame his whole life, crippled his whole life. Jesus performs this amazing miracle. The guy takes up his mat and he begins to walk home from the pools. And the Pharisees go berserk. Not because, oh my goodness, here's this man who has just healed someone who's been plagued for his whole life. The Pharisees go berserk because one of their rules was you are not allowed to carry anything between property lines on the Sabbath. And this man was carrying a mat. And Jesus, I mean, here, like if you're the audience, you're going, man, the Pharisees are like fanatical about the rules. And I got to be better than them? And Jesus wants us to get in the Sermon on the Mount, their understanding of righteousness is so broken. The path to righteousness, the path to the kingdom is a poverty and spirit. It's not like the Pharisees who pretend like they can climb up to God's level. Jesus is coming and saying, you can't. 
But God is merciful and He's come for you. Embrace and recognize your poverty in spirit and yours is the kingdom of heaven. Mourn. Acknowledge it. And you'll be comforted. Be meek and you'll inherit this earth. Hunger and thirst for righteousness and I will satisfy you. And the Pharisees are going, nope, I got this. Crazy. You want to be more righteous than the Pharisees? It's not found by puffing yourself up to show how great you are. It's found by becoming small in your own eyes. Humble before the Lord. And the Lord looks at that. Humility is the gateway of every single Christian virtue. And man, in the Lord's sight, that is righteous. Not what the Pharisees are doing. You see, we have this idea in our culture, and we want to do this. To talk about the holiness of God today is offensive. People don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear about sin. They don't want to hear about, you know, God being infinite and all of his attributes. Like, that's just like la, 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 la. You don't want to hear that. And so what do we do? We take, even in the church, some churches do this, where we take the standards of God, these infinitely holy God, and we take Him and His standards, and we want to yank it down and say, well, God's standards are not all that bad. They're not that hard to attain. We can do it. And we pull God down until we can say, Jesus is our homeboy. And we come down to us who are hopeless of ever reaching the righteousness of God, and we say, no, you're really good. You're wonderful. Everything about you is, you know, just perfect. And we take the holiness of God here, and we take the depravity of man and say, no, you're here. And that separation, that chasm, is the mission of Christ who comes to reconcile you to God. But if you can do this on your own, how valuable is your Christ? he's worthless Jesus is saying if you want to draw near to the Lord if you want to be deepened in your appreciation for the gospel do you want to be blown away by this mission and called into this then here's the deal when you take God and you try your best to put him in his proper context which is infinite in his attributes your mind can't even trace them that high Just when you think, okay, that's pretty high, add some more infinity to it. Your mind can't go there that high. And oh, by the way, here I am. Poor in spirit. Mourning. Hungering and thirsting for something I don't have. And the greater that becomes, that becomes the preciousness of your Savior. You're in a dry season. We all go through them. You know what the key to that is? Humble yourself and think who He is. That the God of those infinite attributes hung on a cross, bloodied and disfigured for you. And stand before that cross and that God and imagine shrugging. That will humble you. You know, to be salt and light in this world transforms things. So a man by the name of George Whitfield helped launch the Great Awakening in 1730s to 1770. There were three big preachers, he was one of them, that turned the nation around, led to the American Revolution, took a nation that had fallen into wickedness where there were brothels and crime and everything everywhere, 
And he turned the nation back around to God. The Spirit used him to do that. Benjamin Franklin said that when he came to his town, listen to how he describes it, and imagine somebody writing this of Fort Lauderdale. He said, it was wonderful after Whitfield came through and preached and told the people, you're you're desperate, you're poor, you're this, that, and the other. You need the Lord. Franklin said, I couldn't believe they listened to him. He like basically insulted them and they loved him for it. And he said, it was wonderful to soon see the change and the manners of our inhabitants from being thoughtless or indifferent about religion. It seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms being sung in the families of every different street. God can do that. And He used this man as salt and light to pour himself out and to go through the colonies preaching the Word and to the point where you had this city that was thoughtless or indifferent about religion to where you couldn't go down the street without hearing Hillsong in that house and Bethel in that house and Third Day or whatever in this house and everybody's praising God all over the city and he's (laughs) stunned. And he didn't just go to the powerful. One of my favorite things written about Whitfield comes from a young girl named Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis was eight years old when she was kidnapped from West Africa, stripped from her family, put on a slave ship, sailed across the Atlantic to Boston, taken out, sold to the Wheatley family. Her slave ship was named Phyllis. She got the name Phyllis. Her slave owners were Wheatley. She got the name Phyllis Wheatley. When she was 17 years old, she went out to hear a man preach And this man refused to abide by the customs of that day. And he welcomed in everybody. Slaves, poor, diseased, sinners, outcasts, senators, precious rich people. All of them came to hear this message. And she was blown away by the dignity that this man offered to the Africans, which nobody else seemed to do at the time. And she wrote this poem. She's the first published African-American in the history of the United States woman. She writes this, Hail, happy saint, on thine immortal throne, possessed of glory, life, and bliss unknown. He prayed that grace in every heart might dwell. He longed to see America excel. He charged its youth that in every grace divine should with full luster and their conduct shine. That Savior which his soul first did receive the greatest gift that even a God can give. He freely offered to the numerous throng that on his lips with listening pleasure hung. And then she starts quoting his messages in poetry. And she says, Take Him, ye wretched, for your only good. Take Him, ye starving sinners, for your food. Ye thirsty, come to this life-giving stream. You preachers, take Him for your joyful theme. Take Him, my dear Americans, He said. Be your complaints on His bosom laid. And then she closes with this, which is beautiful. Take Him, ye Africans. He longs for you. Impartial Savior is His title due. Washed in the fountain of redeeming blood, you shall be sons and kings and priests to God. Transformed this girl. Writes this poem at 17. 
one man God uses to be salt and light, to bring healing and to draw out the beauty of people and to spread this new creation where all things are made right, laying his life down, being small in his own eyes, giving up his own petty desires to lay them all out for the sake of the advancement of God's kingdom. And he leaves behind this amazingly beautiful legacy. And by the way, our country was birthed out of the Great Awakening. That's a life worth living. Be salt and light. And remember, salt and light are not made for themselves. They are to make everything they encounter better. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank You so much that You use us, that even though we stray from You and even though we're self-centered, Lord, You're patient with us. I pray that as we continue to grow, Lord, that Your Spirit would humble us, that that You would remind us of our great need for You, that You would remind us of Your amazing willingness to pour Yourself out completely for our sake. I pray that You would help us to do amazing things to bring forth this new creation in which You are making all things new and beautiful. Lord, I pray that You would do mighty things in the lives of each and every person here to bring about a revival where we would not be able to walk through the streets of this city without hearing the people praising Your name. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.